0: After we finished a study of the book of the Bible, we finished Joshua last week, and we're going to start the book of Galatians next Sunday, but I didn't want to jump into it starting off on a holiday weekend and um, uh, just needed a little bit more prep time. So we'll start that next week and encourage you to read the whole book of Galatians uh, in preparation for uh, that study. In fact, it won't take you very long to read, maybe 15 minutes max, uh, maybe if you're a slow reader, 20 minutes. Uh, if you can sit down at one sitting and read the whole thing beginning to end, I think you'll do really well. In fact, it's a great sort of quiet time, devotional time uh, reading. You can do that for your devotional time if you don't have anything uh, currently going on. Uh, but I wanted to uh, look at uh, the theme of work today. This is Labor Day weekend, and not that I'm trying to preach to the holidays, so to speak. But it's a good time for us to think about our, our work and our vocation and to gain a biblical perspective on that. Um, And I think that the reason why this is important is because there's a a, a distinct difference between the way that the world perceives work and how a Christian ought to think about his or her work. Now, among non-believing people, there are generally two perspectives. The predominant view, I would say, is is overwhelmingly negative. Most people view their work as, as drudgery, as a necessary evil, as an unavoidable means ...to a necessary end. We work because we must. We require income to meet our needs and to supply our wants. But for many people in the world, there is little joy or desire to work. In fact, you can think about how work is expressed in popular music. Now, I'm a child of the... I was born in the 70s, and a child of the 80s, really. And so I got to thinking about 80s songs about work. And so here are just the, some of the lyrics. Of course, there was a song... Working for the weekend, right? Everybody's working for the weekend. That's really when you really get to live. Eh, That work week is not anything good. you got to do that to get to what you really want to do on the weekend. Or Dolly Parton fans, working nine to five, what a way to make a living. Barely getting by, it's all taken and no given. Just use your mind and they'll never give you credit. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. Or even much before my time. You load 16 times, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. Now, I don't agree with the theology of this song, okay? St. <laughs> Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. And maybe the most dramatic, emblematic, take this job and shove it. <laughs> I ain't working here no more. If you think about it, though, it's not too different from what Solomon says about work in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 22 and 23. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he works, with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Now, have to consider the broader context of that, but... Solomon and Ecclesiastes are showing the futility of making work your life, solely thinking that work will be the thing that satisfies you. And that gets us into sort of the other main perspective that our world has about work, and that is that people, there are some people who make work their obsession. It's almost as if they, they worship their work. It's all consuming, not because it's a necessary thing, but because it's a thing that brings great satisfaction and great drive, and maybe it brings great reward. It's an all-consuming aspect of life. It it requires one's complete time and attention so that really everything else in life is neglected. Both of these attitudes are really aberrant in light of a biblical worldview. So how should Christians think about work? Well, we need to remember that God instituted work not as a result of the fall, but as an essential feature of the created order, right? We tend to think of work as a consequence of the fall. The thing, one of the things, one of the curses that God gave to man because he disobeyed God. That, that, is, that work is in essence a, a curse. That their, the consequence of their sin was to work. That it wasn't really part of God's original design for creation. But if we read the creation accounts very closely, I think we would see otherwise. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, we read that God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. A little bit later on in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So when God created the world, he intended human beings to work. Genesis 1, he Intended with the idea, with the desire, the inclination to create human beings. He created them with a job to do to have dominion over all that he had made. In Genesis 2, we see the idea there of of working and keeping the garden brings about the idea of stewardship. That God has given creation to man as a stewardship, as a trust for them to oversee and to steward and to manage. There is work involved in that. The curse after the fall intensified the work so that it made it more difficult. This is where the idea, we're thinking about semantics, right? The idea of labor, hard work, toil. That comes into play after the fall. In Genesis three seventeen through 19, And to Adam God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the fruit tree of the fruit of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, so you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So after the fall, it's not that Adam had to work when he didn't work before, he had to simply work harder. His work would be toil, it required a greater intensity and effort. But even though our work is touched by the fall, Scripture still upholds the value of work. It's still a creation mandate for us, and I believe it's a provision of God's grace to us. God has given us the responsibility of work for his glory and for our good. Now, I would say here, too, and if some people are tuning me out, I don't have a job. It doesn't really apply to me. By work, I think we can see not just an occupation or gainful employment, having to work for an income, but if you maintain your household, stay-at-home moms, if you maintain your households, that's... That's work, right? Would you acknowledge that that's work? <laughs> right? In fact, sometimes we don't think of it that way. We need to think of it that way. It is work. If you volunteer your time, we have some people in our church who are retired, who don't have to go and clock in and clock out or to, to work nine to five, five, five days a week. If you volunteer your time at some place, if you set your hand to things at your home, if you serve your church, if you are productive in any way that exercises dominion over over creation, or that stewards God's resources, I think that qualifies as work. Work includes anything productive that we set our hands to do. And so I want to think about this topic today. I want to think about it primarily from the book of Proverbs. As you probably know, Proverbs is a book of wisdom that provides practical instructions, practical directions for daily living. It's very practical. You know, how do we, you know, it's. I guess maybe it's easy to serve God in church, Right, We come to church, we sing songs, we hear God's Word. Some of us are involved in in setting up communion or passing out bulletins or, or serving the church in other ways. It's easy to think about serving God in that context. But do we see our lives away from this church building, away from the people of God, as also serving the Lord? We're serving the Lord in those ways as well. So how do we serve the Lord apart from our congregational gathering. Well, Proverbs is an excellent book that speaks to a lot of those issues. As you probably are aware, the overarching theme of Proverbs is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? The beginning of living a life that is wise, the beginning of living a life of righteousness, a, a, the, way of li- a, the way of living a life uh, that is pleasing to the Lord, is that's, that comes from God's wisdom. So God has given us His wisdom to help us to know how we are to serve him and honor him, and, and even the mundane and ordinary things of life. And so it shouldn't surprise us that many of the issues and many of the daily tasks, many daily responsibilities that we have, aspects of daily life, are we are given wisdom about those things in the book of Proverbs. And so we want to think specifically about the issue of work this morning, and as we Look at God's wisdom here. As we understand God's wisdom and seek to apply God's wisdom, I think we will more faithfully honor God and be a faithful witness to Christ in our work. So, Proverbs chapter six, and we're gonna we're gonna use this as kind of our base text. But there'll be opportunities to look at other passages. In fact, I've put a lot of the, the scripture references on the screen from Proverbs because, again, this is a prevalent issue that is repeatedly mentioned. Proverbs six, beginning in verse six. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food for in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So let's start there. Let's start there with the shameful example of the sluggard. And a sluggard is simply a person who is habitually inactive or lazy. Someone who obviously neither wants to work or likes to work. In fact, I like the New Revised Standard Version of this word. It translates this word sluggard as lazy bones. It's a vivid mental picture, right, of a, of a lazy bone. Just someone who just lying around, inactive, doesn't want to do anything. We might use the expression couch potato in our own vernacular. Proverbs often uses the sluggard as a negative example of what an Israelite should not be or how they should not go about their work. In fact, what Proverbs oftentimes does, not just in this case, but in in many cases, is to set a contrast between what we ought to be and do versus what we shouldn't be or do. In this case, the sluggard is the negative example. The, The Proverbs here is exhorting us to a lifestyle of hard work of industriousness, of diligence, and it places that value, it places that, that exhortation in contrast with the example of the sluggard. Tremper Longman, who wrote a commentary on Proverbs, says that Proverbs is intolerant of lazy people. They are the epitome of folly. And that word folly is an important word also in the book of Proverbs. Especially, not just the Proverbs, but really the the broader Old Testament. Because folly is not some. We think of folly as someone who is... uh, The result of someone who is maybe ignorant. Or maybe doesn't have a certain intellectual capacity. But that's not what a, a fool is in the Old Testament. Foolishness is willful rebellion against God's commands. A fool is someone who knows what God requires of him... But refuses to do it. You might think about the Psalms, right? The fool says in his heart there is no God. He is basically the fool is an atheist. It's not that the fool is uncertain about whether or not there is a God. He knows there's a God. He knows what God requires of his life. But he willfully chooses not to walk in that way. He willfully chooses to walk in a way apart from God's commands. And so in the case of the sluggard here, the sluggard is a fool because he knows what God requires of him. But he refuses to apply it to himself. And so the sluggard is a fool. He prefers to love himself. He prefers to fulfill his own desires. He prefers to follow the dictates of his own heart rather than honor God, obey his commandments, and apply his wisdom. Proverbs indicates that God is intolerant of lazy people. And if that's the case, then, then we should be vigilant not to imitate the sluggard. That warning against becoming the sluggard is made all the more emphatic in Proverbs because Solomon here, I think, reserves his harshest criticism, his harshest um, uh, yeah, criticism for the sluggard. He, he is here ridiculing the sluggard. And he does so in a way that is, is comical, right? We read these things. You might be kind of inner, inwardly chuckling, right? Oh, that's a uh, ha-ha. But it really is no laughing matter. This is a, a, This is a biting... Criticism, a biting ridicule, because the sluggard refuses to walk in God's ways. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, Solomon here is posing a contrast between the sluggard and the ant. And he addresses the sluggard in verse 6 to consider the ways of the ant. And if you think about the ant, you know, this is pretty small. Proverbs, 35, verse 20, Proverbs 30, verse 25 says that ants are creatures of little strength. And yet Solomon says here, look at that little creature and become wise. Look at what the ant does and apply that to your life so that you ward off laziness and embrace diligence. What does Solomon say about the ant? In verses 7 and 8, he says he has no overseer. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. So there is no overarching authority for the ant. There's nothing, there's no officer, there's no chief that would motivate the ant to work. Instead, she brings her own initiative and discipline to the task. The sluggard, by contrast, must be prodded to rise up out of his bed and to go and do his work. The ant is also proactive. There's no one to oversee her, and yet she takes initiative to prepare for her needs in times of plenty so that she can sustain herself in times of lack, right? She prepares her food, her, she prepares her bread in summer, but in harvest time, she goes out and she gathers that food so that when the time is lacking, when the winter time comes, she has what is available so that she can sustain herself in those periods of want. So the ant engages her task here with hard and consistent work. And by contrast, the sluggard loves his rest. Now, again, I want to say there is a place for rest in the created order. That's part of God's design as well. He built that into creation. It's the the seventh day. What did God do on the seventh day after he created on the first six days? He rested. And that is a paradigm for our earthly lives as well. But the sluggard's rest is excessive. In fact, it's not really rest. It's laziness. The the sluggard is lazy and refuses to work. In fact, Solomon in verse 10 mocks the sluggard's mantra, right? Right. He says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. You notice that repetition of little. Just a little bit of, just a little bit of sleep. Just a little slumber. Just gonna fold my hands just for a little bit. But by emphasizing that word three times, he is, he is showing that the, the sluggard is not really interested in taking a little bit of rest. He's showing that this is a lifestyle for the man. The sluggard's lifestyle is one of laziness. One of indolence. Ultimately, the sluggard, because of his affinity for rest, will be overcome by destitution and calamity. Verse 10, again, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And what's the result? Poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So Solomon's point here in this section of Scripture, verses 6 through 11, is don't be like the sluggard. Don't let idleness overtake you. Don't let laziness Become the means of destruction that is, that is coming upon you. They don't have to turn there because I've got the verses on the screen. But Proverbs 26 verses 13 to 16 also offers a similar rebuke of the, slug, the sluggard through a vignette of sarcastic yet comedic statements. And Proverbs 26:13 says, "The sluggard There is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets.'" So the sluggard here is using a ridiculous excuse to rationalize his activity. Now, in Israel, in ancient Israel, there were indeed lions, but they were more in the, the forest, the wooded forests of Israel. They were not within the, the walls of a city, not in the streets where people would normally live. So this statement that there's a lion in the road that would keep me from doing my work is about as absurd as me saying, I can't go to work today because there's a polar bear in the streets. A polar bear might kill me. When there's no polar bear even close to being around me to threaten me or harm me in any single way. This is an irrational excuse. And it keeps the sluggard firmly entrenched in his indolence. Proverbs 26 verse 14 says, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. That's a lovely illustration. We know that the door, right? Right. The door swings back and forth. What does the sluggard do? Like he's attached to the bed. He goes back and forth. Back to stomach, stomach to back, laying in his bed, right? He's basking in the comfort of his bed. He can't get out, doesn't want to get out. He's so comfortable. He's so warm. He's so relaxed. He can only move from one side of his bed to another. He never gets out. The sluggard is firmly fixed to his comfort zone. Proverbs 26, verse 15 says, The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Again, can you imagine being so lazy that at lunchtime this afternoon that you would put your fork into your food and you were too lazy to bring it up to your mouth? That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. He is so lazy that the very thought of any kind of exertion would cause him to fail to do any kind of work, that the idea of exertion itself just exhausts him. And then Proverbs 26, verse 16, the sluggard is wiser than in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Or that phrase, seven men who can answer sensibly, is an emphatic way of showing the fullness of wisdom, right? If you were the sluggard, if you were the fool, and you had seven men that were arguing, you, arguing you with you with the, the, the truth of God's wisdom, you would be so bold as to say to them, I'm right and you're wrong. To think that I have more wisdom, that I will prefer my own ways to the way of true wisdom. This here is a, in a way in which the sluggard says he, he values his laziness, he values his indolence. That that's his virtue. That's his, that's his ethic for living. So what can we learn about ourselves from the sluggard? Bruce Waltke, another commentator, says that laziness is more than a character flaw It is a moral issue. And by moral issue, walkie means it's a sin. Laziness and indolence are sins. Now, we probably would all look at the sluggard here in Proverbs and say, well, I'm not that bad, right? I'm not that bad. But remember that God doesn't grade on a curve. Laziness and indolence do not honor God. These vices are rooted really in the sinful heart, in arrogance and selfishness that seeks to serve self instead of serving God. Imitating the sluggard at work damages our relationships with our employers and our supervisors and our coworkers. Our laziness communicates that we are looking out for number one. We have no regard for others or the mutual work that's been assigned to all in the workplace. And so laziness does, as Solomon says in chapter 6, verse 11, it brings to destruction. Destruction to the business or the enterprise or the organization that we work for through the loss of productivity and resources. It distracts from the common mission of the workplace. It results in damaged relationships. It tarnishes reputations, not just your own, but even those that you work with. Proverbs 18, verse 9 says, Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. And the key point here is that laziness breeds destruction. Destruction. If we think about what sin does, right, sin destroys. Laziness, indolence is a mark of sin. So from the illustration of the sluggard, I think we understand that we are not to be this kind of person. In fact, even more, not simply don't be this person, flee from being this kind of person. Laziness, sloth, indolence, slackness, all dishonor God. We must instead embrace the work that God has placed before us, whatever that may be. So what characteristics, that, so if this is the negative example, what is it that we ought to do? What is it that we ought to be? What characteristics should we possess at work if we're going to honor God in our work? Well, let's look at a, a few. And I'm going to use, again, I don't like to use the foreign languages a lot, so I'm not trying to necessarily teach you Hebrew or Greek, but Hebrew has three words that can mean a multitude of things in English. And so I'm going to use the three Hebrew words to kind of flesh out some of the ideas that maybe we're more familiar with in our own language. And so the first word is the word makir, which literally means to hasten, to be fast, to be quick, to be speedy. And these, this word kind of brings out two attributes, promptness and initiative. So when we think about promptness, we think about being on time, right? Being prompt, being here at a certain time. And that's certainly part of it. But the idea here is more of a, of a quickness or a readiness. To be prompt means that we don't dally or dawdle. We do our work when it's given. And we work efficiently keeping ourselves on task. Initiative also includes the idea of self-motivation. Acting without need for instruction or supervision, right? You have this sort of internal drive. You have this internal focus. To be able to to go about your work and to do that work, you set yourself to it, you're not distracted, but you have that that internal drive, you have that internal accountability to work well. and I think we saw that very well in the parable of the ant in verses seven and eight, without having any chief overseer or officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in winter. There's no one to to keep her on tap, right. There's no one to kind of look over her shoulder and say, look, you've got to go get your quota today, because if you don't, we're not going to be prepared or supplied in the wintertime. She has that internal sense of initiative and that internal sense of accountability to go and do what she needs to do without being prodded or being encouraged. The second Hebrew word is the word shakar. It's a verb that means to seek early, and it refers to an intense searching. It reminds me a lot of in the New Testament, the parables of Jesus, the lost sheep and the lost coin. The shepherd who goes and searches for his sheep, he leaves the 99 and goes after the one. He searches diligently. He searches intensely for that sheep. And same for the woman with a lost coin. She loses the coin. It's very valuable to her. And she turns her house upside down, looking for that coin. And so behind this word, shakar brings the attributes of focus and discipline and diligence. Focus refers to having established priorities knowing what to do and then acting on those priorities. Focus stands in contrast to aimlessness, where there's no clear sense of direction, no clear sense of what to do, and the failure to act whenever instruction is given. Discipline is very similar to promptness and initiative in the sense that we have that internal drive, that internal sense of accountability. But discipline also highlights the presence and importance of self-control. Discipline keeps us on task and working productively with self-accountability. And diligence just refers to hard work. When we are diligent, we put the best and most of what we have into our work. The third Hebrew word in Proverbs to kind of bring about this character that we should have is the word harutz, which means to act decisively. And included in this word are the ideas of initiative and discipline that we've already talked about, but also it speaks of the attribute of preparation, And preparation is pretty self-explanatory, right? To be prepared, to be fully prepared for the task that lies ahead. Preparation stands in contrast to hastiness or impulsive action. Someone who goes about his work without thinking about what he's doing, without planning for what is to come. Preparation allows us to be more efficient with our time, our resources, our abilities, and our strength. Preparation improves focus and spurs initiative. Knowing what we must do We have the vision and the challenge, then, to accomplish it. Proverbs 21, verse 5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Daniel Estes, in his commentary on Proverbs, summarizes the idea behind these three words by saying that diligence motivates a person to move quickly, to accept stretching challenges, to stay focused on what is crucial in the long run, rather than living for what is convenient at the present. And to grasp decisively the opportunities that God presents. So these are all attributes that God expects of us at work. This is his wisdom for us so that we might honor him. The problem then with us is that we struggle to possess these characteristics sufficiently, right? And consistently. The old self, right? That old slugger that still kind of we still fight with and still battle with keeps rising up within us to keep us from honoring God in our work. Paul warned the Thessalonians of this kind of attitude, this kind of idleness. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, it says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So to honor God in our work, when we are trying to ward off these, these vices of laziness and indolence and trying to, to inculcate, to, to bring it, put it into practice those, those attributes that God requires of us, desires of us, then we must, as Paul says in Colossians 3, put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. See, the gospel that changes us bears fruit in our lives. It bears fruit by reflecting the character of Christ in us and striving to honor God in all things. If the gospel affects all of life, then certainly it affects our work. Living by the gospel means that we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit and we seek his help so that we can honor God by displaying the godly characteristics that he upholds for us in his word. So if these are things that you struggle with, this is not meant to be a condemnation. This is meant to be an encouragement today for us to to live godly lives, right? To encourage us to to walk and to to live faithfully before the Lord. If you struggle to drum up these attributes, I think we all do to some extent, then we need to seek the Spirit's help. When we imitate the sluggard, we reveal that we are gratifying the desires of the flesh. But what does Paul tell us? What is his counsel to us in Galatians 5.16? He says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So the goal here is not, the goal of this message is not be better and do better, The goal is to examine our lives, examine how we work, and then submit ourselves to God's Word and to seek the help that He provides for us by His Holy Spirit so that we can honor God in all things relating to our work. That brings us into sort of the final aspect of this that I want to look at, and that is the results that normally come from hard work. The results that normally come from hard work. Now, as a book of wisdom, again, Proverbs instructs God's people on how they should live on a daily basis. It guides us through living righteously in the everyday, ordinary, practical matters of life. And it also lays out the general results or outcomes that we can expect for righteous living. But I want to make clear here first, as we before we get into this, that there are no guarantees to this. Books like Job and Ecclesiastes remind us that God is sovereign over all of life and that sometimes God does things that we might not expect. But Proverbs does generally indicate what will happen if we obey him, everything else being equal. And so with that in mind, I want to share three results that will normally proceed from hard work if we align ourselves with God's word. And again, this is not, I say these things not as, this is the goal we're trying to achieve, but this is the fruit. I mean, maybe that's the better way to put it. This is the fruit of what will happen when we practice these things in our God, in our in our lives. This is what God does. So the, the first result, the first potential for result is that hard work will put us in the position to be prosperous. There's a potential for prosperity. Bruce Waltke writes the sluggard is never equated with the poor who are so by virtue of circumstances beyond their control, such as tyranny. But the sluggard is poor by virtue of his moral degeneracy. So here's the here's the thing about this. What this is saying here is that people who are, we don't work backwards in this case. People who are poor, people who are living in poverty, it is not indicative of laziness. There are other factors that contribute to that. Circumstantial things that maybe would be even out of their control. But what I think, Proverbs is saying to us here is that laziness will surely lead to poverty, all things else being equal. That if we are lazy, if we are indolent, that the normal result will be poverty, it will be want, it will be lack. Proverbs 10 verse 4 says that a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. In all toil there is, pro- uh, Proverbs verse, uh, 14 verse 23, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. And Proverbs 28, verse 19 says, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. So again, hard work is no guarantee that one will become wealthy. And that, again, is not even the goal for us. I hope you're not hearing me as say, preaching a prosperity gospel. The goal is not to accumulate wealth in this life. But the ordinary working of God, as we are seeking to honor Him with our lives, to work hard, to work with with initiative to work with focus and preparation and diligence and discipline will normally be the way of prosperity what happens when you work hard you keep your job you're not on the chopping block to have to be gotten rid of because you're not doing the work or even when times are bad and people have to be laid off you are increasing your probability of retaining your job because you are a hard worker so retaining your employment is a good thing right we have been given a job to do. We are to work. We are to be productive. When we work hard, we typically advance through the ranks, right? People who work hard typically are given promotions and given opportunities to have more authority over others, have more input maybe into the business or the company. They also offer, also provide the opportunity to earn better wages. So you work hard, there's an increase, a chance you're going to be getting a raise, a chance that you'll increase your ability to provide for yourself. Again, we don't seek that out, but it is the normal process of what happens when we work hard. And those things have benefit, not just for your family, but for the kingdom of God. Would the God that all the people of the church would have promotions and bonuses and raises and be able to tithe off of that. Amen. Wouldn't that be good for the kingdom of God? Wouldn't that do good for missions? Right. Again, God doesn't need that, but that is the ordinary way in which he works. And so it should be a good thing to work hard because there is the potential for prosperity. Again, not for our own self-aggrandizement, but for the opportunity to do good for the kingdom. Hard work also, secondly, second outcome, potential outcome, is that hard work also merits a good reputation. Hard work merits a good reputation. Proverbs 10 verse 5 says, He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son. Who brings shame. Working hard, working the hardest is hard work. The son who works with his father to work hard and gather the family, gather the crops ensures his family's success. And by doing that, what do others say about him? He is a hardworking man. He is a faithful son. He is someone who cares about his family. He receives a good reputation, not only within his own family, but among his community. But the son who sleeps? The son who's lazy, the son who can't be bothered by hard work, what does he do? What happens to him? He brings shame upon himself. Proverbs 10, verse 26, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. The common theme here is that of irritation, right? Undiluted vinegar is highly acidic. Its sourness would not only taste bad, but it would also irritate the teeth as the acid worked on the enamel. An uncontrolled fire. You know, fires were very common in that time to cook food. You wanted to have a controlled fire that was productive. An uncontrolled fire produces billowing smoke that irritates the eyes. Laziness, by analogy here, irritates those that you work for and work with. And it's that laziness that impugns your reputation and credibility. And ultimately, you're witness to them. It's hard to be a witness for Christ when you're lazy at work. There's something about integrity that gives, that, gives, that bears witness to our witness to Christ, to our testimony for Christ. It shows the fruitfulness of the gospel at work in us. In Proverbs 31, we have the example of the virtuous woman who works tirelessly at home and even beyond to meet her family's needs. In Proverbs 31, verse 31, the proverb ends with, Give her, the fruit, give her of the fruit of her hands. Let her works praise her in the gates. So the virtuous woman earns a good reputation among her family and in her community. And ultimately, this good reputation brings glory to God. The final result here of hard work is personal satisfaction. Personal satisfaction. Proverbs 12, verse 14 says that from the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good and the work of a man's hand comes back to him in Proverbs 13, verse 4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the son of the diligent is richly supplied. Hard work is personally rewarding beyond what material benefits may come with it. When we work hard, we're fulfilling the creation mandate that God has entrusted to us. Serving the Lord brings us great delight. And so God has built satisfaction into our obedience. God blesses us. As we are living a life of righteousness, as we are seeking to honor him in all things, the fruit of that is going to be the satisfaction that comes from obeying God. And again, I would just say here, because I don't want to be misconstrued, that Proverbs does not guarantee these results, but it does offer us wisdom for those who fear the Lord. And it lays out what ordinarily happens when we live according to his wisdom. God does indeed bless his people. And while these blessings are not ultimate, they are blessings nevertheless. They're tokens of God's love and favor, and they foreshadow his eternal blessings to his people. The great hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote a poem using the sluggard as his inspiration. So, hat tip to Jeff to sharing this with me this week. I thought it was great. I wanted to share it. Isaac Watts, I think he wrote Joy to the World or one of those Christmas hymns that we like to sing so much. Anyway, great hymn writer of the 18th century. He said this. He says, The voice of the sluggard, I heard him complain. You have waked me too soon. I must slumber again. As a door in its hinges, so he on his bed turns his sides and his shoulders and his heavy head. A little more sleep and a little more slumber. Thus he wastes half his days and his hours without number. And when he gets up, he sits folding his hands, ...or walks about sauntering or trifling he stands. I passed by his garden and saw the wild briar, the thorn and the thistle grew broader and higher. The clothes that hang on him are turning to rags and his money still wastes till he starves or he begs. I made him a visit still hoping to find he took better care for improving his mind. He told me his dreams, talked of eating and drinking, but he scarce reads his Bible and never loves thinking... And this is the punchline. Said I then to my heart, here's a lesson for me, that man's but a picture of what I might be. But thanks to my friends for their care in in my breeding, who taught me betimes to love working and reading. That's the truth of the matter here, is that apart from Christ, we are that sluggard. Maybe it doesn't show outwardly, but it's certainly true inwardly and spiritually. Let's be reminded, friends, that God created us for himself. Our lives belong to him. He's given us work to do. And because of what Christ has done for us, and because he has given to us his Holy Spirit, we should strive to honor God in all of our labor. And because we labor for the Lord, our work, no matter what it is, will never be in vain. Paul writes in Colossians 3, 23 and 24, Whatever you do... Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Let us go into our places of work, into our homes, into those places where God has put us and let us serve the Lord Christ there. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, to be reminded of the practical things of life, the things that that really affect us, that really are always before us, you know, Monday through Saturday. And I thank you, Lord, that your word cares about those aspects of our life and gives us wisdom for how we ought to live in those times. I pray, Lord, you would help us to not be like the sluggard, because, Lord, apart from Christ, that's what we really are inwardly. We, we, are, we are lazy people. We are foolish people. We're people that prefer ourselves, prefer our loves, our lusts. We're people that Desire to um, determine our own course of life and our own way of life. We rejected the fact that we we would would reject the fact, Lord, that, that you are the creator. That you have any claim of our life. We're thankful, Lord, so much you sent your son Jesus into the world to redeem us. To remind us, Lord, of what it is you've created us for. What you've redeemed us for. For what you've given us to do. And I pray, Lord, that we would indeed serve you, no matter what it is we do, no matter where it is we go, that you would help us, Lord, to serve you with all of our heart. May you be pleased. And may we set our hopes and our goal and our focus on that inheritance you give to us in Jesus Christ. It's in the name that we pray. Amen.